Welcome back to the arbitration station. Uh, quite possibly the worst arbitration clause I've ever read in my life. Okay, ready? One, two, three. England. Russia. Oh, <laughs> well, of course. He's going to get disbarred in two seconds after all of this. Yeah, so if I were the sole arbitrator... It's called, give him the old razzle-dazzle, Joel. You just, you know, if it sounds good, maybe they won't... Relaciones equal to... Arriba! Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Brian Kotick. I'm Joel Dorcas Kulbori. And we are your co-hosts for another episode and season of the Arbitration Station podcast covering both commercial and investment arbitration, 66% serious substance, 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world, and 1% Peroni. Ha <laughs> <laughs> Ding. <laughs> <laughs> Where in the world are you, Ryan? Uh, right next to you, Joel, in London, in my office. I have a name tag. Yes. To get in here. Visitor Doll Space Quist. <laughs> That's me. First name Doll, last name Quist. <laughs> well, welcome to the show, Doll. Thank you very much. <laughs> I prefer Dr. Quist, actually. <laughs> Dr. Quist, medicine woman. <laughs> Finally. Back in business, season four. I know, did you guys miss this? The Game of Thrones analogy was quite accurate. Yeah, true. Oh, on that a analogy, it's going to be a crappy season. Oh no, okay. Well, it's not our last. No, it's not. It's true. <laughs> How's your summer been, Brian? And only arbitration-related answers, please. Oh, so not warm and air-conditionless? <laughs> um, no, it's been fine. I mean, I've been really busy. I have had a couple filings. I was joking, but oh. I guess that was your summer then, <laughs> essentially. Yeah, I uh, also... Got engaged? Yeah. Is that Ooh. relevant for the podcast? Yeah, I think so. It's semi-arbitration related. <laughs> right. But congratulations. Yeah, thanks. Not an arbitration lawyer, so no arbitration babies coming soon. Uh, which is also a topic for today's happy fun time, dating arbitration lawyers. Exactly. As it happens. Or dating in arbitration. Dating in arbitration. More widely. We'll get back to that, though. How was your summer? You were not in Europe. Uh, no, that's that's right. I spent the summer in New York City, which, on the face of it, is an incredibly stupid idea. Why? It's muggy and oh, yeah. like smelly, and <laughs> the only time of the year when it's actually nice to be in Scandinavia. I left for three months. That's and true. Did some IE reporter work and some other work, and uh, enjoyed my newfound freedom, having defended my dissertation being technically unemployed. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you were living in Brooklyn. Right. That's where uh, all of us. Uh, Europeans live when we go to New York. <laughs> oh, you hipsters. I worked from from a WeWork office in downtown Brooklyn, and I was absolutely the only lawyer in that hipster mecca of like young creatives <laughs> playing pool and drinking <laughs> I beer. I like, skateboards like, <laughs> yeah. rolling by, and you're like, shut up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm working on an article. Yeah, exactly. Do you even know who I am? <laughs> They're like, no. I reported doesn't stop, though, when the rest of the world takes time off. That's the worst thing about being a journalist. True. The news keeps happening, actually. <laughs> Which is why, speaking of news, my, my professional high point, I think, so far, was this summer when I got to lecture The Economist's uh, leader uh, in print. I mean, this is a pretty big deal. It is. It's, it's up there with uh, defending the PhD. All right, tell us what happened. <laughs> I think some of our listeners may have noticed that The Economist, they published... Um, uh, an op-ed piece in the beginning of the summer, I think it was probably in June or late May, when they uh, were in, in that text written by an unnamed person from their uh, leader section, they basically embraced 
uh, investor state arbitration in the broadest possible terms, including in intra-EU relations. And it had to do with, you know, ACMEA and please European states do not kill this uh, amazing system just over some misguided understanding. But it was also peppered with just factual inaccuracies. Yikes. Uh, yep, not so good. And being the Messerschmitt that I am and that you know me as and our listeners know <laughs> me as, I tweeted about this and it, it went viral in the arbitration Twitter sense, which okay. is like <laughs> 25 <laughs> likes and four retweets. <laughs> like our podcast. <laughs> exactly. Is anyone listening? <laughs> no, so I got um, I, um, someone from The Economist actually reached out and said, oh shit, this is probably something you should uh, let the, the people who wrote this know. So you wrote them a letter sent, telling them that, and then no, they I, no, yeah, yeah, that's what happened. I, so I tweeted about it and pointed out a few things that they, they ah. got wrong, and they they called ICSID a court across the Atlantic, and they said that a bunch of EU member states are are uh, uh, on the record as wanting to maintain the intra-EU bits, whereas in fact there's a declaration that they've all signed that they they are about to terminate the bits. Uh, minor stuff like that, but like four or five Technical things. Problems. Yeah, but still something you know. The, it's the Economist. So they found your tweet and then. Then this individual person from The Economist encouraged me to, to send uh, an email, wow. which they obviously have a, a system for. Mm-hmm. And I did, and then they edited that a little bit and published it in the print version as me. And it's also Marcus uh, Burgstaller mm-hmm. from Hogan Lovells, right? Yeah, here in London. Yeah, he did the same thing. And he, of course, represented Slovakia in the ACMIA case. He also had a few things to say things to The to Economist. <laughs> uh, so how many copies did you buy? That's the thing. I was in New York, and I had a hard time finding one. When I did, I, I ultimately lost it, so I don't actually have a physical copy. What? I thought I would frame it like next to my PhD diploma. It's up there. Absolutely. You can so, probably call and get a copy. Yeah, probably. I think I think I have a few friends who subscribe and may have it somewhere. They must. Yeah. Maybe we have so. one upstairs. We'll check. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I should do that. I should get five or ten copies. It's like my mom when I was like on the front page of, like, our local town's newspaper. I should, like, cut it out and almost frame it. <laughs> Just like you. Yeah, it's like, it, it's more or less exactly like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice thing with good newspapers, that they, they also recognize when they're in the wrong, or at least they publish... Uh, but contrary. had you not said anything? That's my problem. I listened to this podcast called Democracy Now!, and I really liked it. It was very left-leaning and I took it with a grain of salt but then they did this whole thing about ICSID and investor state arbitration it was Mm. so wrong Mm. and then I was like if this is the reporting on something that I actually know something about what what are they getting away with in the rest of the reporting yeah and that's what I'm worried about scary yeah because this is just one thing that they you like picked up and like you were an expert on this and and picked it up yeah but you know if someone's like reporting on like a remote war and no one knows anything about it what are they really telling us, Joel? Yeah, fake news, man. Fake news. Let's bury our head in the sand. <laughs> but you did not have a significant arbitration summary, it sounds like. You did other more profound things, such as getting engaged and traveling the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then I was in yeah Los Angeles with my family. But I, um, I mean, I, I did have a lot of work to do, which was quite annoying, but um, even during my vacation... But the as the journalism, the arbitration, no one waits except for our previous boss, who was very stern on not having any work on Midsummer. Mm, that's a Swedish <laughs> thing, though. I know. You have to reserve at least eight hours extra to be hungover the day after Midsummer, too. As you should. Yeah, as yeah, yeah I mean, should. yeah. Amen. But there were a lot of, a lot of things happening, and I, I should mention this uh, in conjunction with mentioning IA Reporter, 
which we are yes. very thankful uh, uh, to because they are sponsoring us for this fourth season as well, similar to the third season. We would not be able to to continue doing this podcast, at least not the way we want to do it, i.e. with the rock and roll sense that we've had so far. Right. Without the sponsorship of IE Reporter, which we will get back to uh, throughout the season. But uh, for IE Reporter, I wrote a summer roundup, which the interested reader who did take time off during the summer can consult at iereporter.com. Uh, it's a, I think it's called Summer 2019, a recap of our coverage or something like that. Uh, so I had to actually sit down and uh, basically wade through arbitration news from the summer in order to service the lazy people who took time off and did not follow news. <laughs> so I, I have a pretty good overview of what happened this summer. No major slam dunk, like m- a big win or big case or big development, I think, maybe with the exception of this... Uh, Tethion versus Pakistan case. Mm-hmm. I think we discussed you and I privately earlier this summer because it was such a big yeah. case. I don't remember the exact figure, but it's like a pretty significant part of Pakistan's GDP yeah. <laughs> that the investor was awarded with interest ticking as we speak, of course. I think that was maybe the biggest award uh, in a long time. Um, absolutely the biggest award so far this year, I guess. And Another case, this is, I love this, as a Swede. You probably saw this too. Tidal, JC's company, the streaming service, yeah. has notified Norway of a bit case. What? Yeah. Oh, oh I, yeah, but what was what were the claims? What was... Uh, I should probably... Unclear. <laughs> unclear. No, I read Norway's uh, response to the to the notice, which okay. is also published on the uh, on iReporter website. Basically... Uh, I think the Norwegian authorities had been investigating supposed fraudulent activity on behalf of Tidal because they had, the authorities are thought at least, that Tidal had been inflating the number of listeners. That's what it is. Yeah. Uh, Fiddled the figures on the Beyonce record. (laughs) (laughs) You're reading this off of a weird newspaper? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Completemusicupdate.com. So, uh, and I think weirdly enough, it's title Poland. So legally speaking, this is a case under the, the Poland-Norway BIT. I'm just happy because it's like my rich, lazy neighbor country is being sued by what is essentially JC. This is so funny. <laughs> I mean, he just had the other one about arbitrator yeah, diversity. Shit, that's right. They didn't connect the dots. There's someone in his camp who went to <laughs> ICAL yeah, in exactly. Stockholm. It's just like, by the way. Somewhere in JC's entourage, that's an arbitration lawyer. But, I mean, someone is must be coming up to him into his ear and be like, they're messing with you, and this is how you sue them. Do you really think he's involved in any of these cases? How would he know to sue Norway? I don't think he's involved. I think there's like some, you know, if it's Tidal Poland, I highlight that the JC is sitting like making the strategy himself in California. No, of course. Wherever he lives. No, you're right. Where do do they live? How do they do that? They must live in, oh. You should know this. Yeah, they probably live in Los Angeles. Yeah. All the douchebags too. compound. So that is, I mean, obviously the on paper the the Tethyan Copper versus Pakistan case is the biggest case this year, but the notification, the title notification against Norway is my favorite. That's a good one. Development, it really is. What else happened? Uh, guess who was the most appointed arbitrator over the summer? And I can give you a key: most arbitrators who were appointed got one or two appointments. This, okay. This person got four appointments only during basically June, July, and August. 
Um, so who's the... Vandenberg. Nope. That was a good guess, though. I think he got two. Um, Q, oh, I can give you a, a hint. He okay. has been on the podcast. <gasps> and it's a he. Go us. Um, You've spoken to him. I haven't. Oh. What? How would I have done that? Tall, Very French, nervous. Pro- professional. Oh, 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 um, um, oh god, it's blanking. I'm on the spot. I'm gonna explode. Oh, this is Arbitration Station at its best. Oh, no. <laughs> you love this stuff. <laughs> um, we talked about provisional measures. No. Oh. We talked about transparency uh, of arbitration of awards. Who? He's the ICC president of the ICC court. Oh, Alexis Moore. Yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah. He's got he got four appointments during the summer. Really? I mean, that's interesting. He must be doing a lot of arbitrate or a lot of arbitrator work. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it seems uh, that's that's more than any other person. Quite interesting. Well, he speaks a lot of languages, I guess. Yeah, and he's obviously a good lawyer and has no conflicts. Yeah. Or very few. Yeah, exactly. That's that's actually a pretty good point. <laughs> um. Who else? There were some other people who were on the cast that were uh, involved in different stories, but maybe we shouldn't go into that. Well, one company was on the cast. Oh, I see <laughs> where had, you're going. <laughs> they had something uh, happen. Uh, Van and Capital sold to Fortress a year after abandoning an IPO. This comes from the Financial Times. So, look, we're in all the newspapers. Um, the Vanden Capital has been sold to the New York investment firm Fortress Investment Group just a year after shelving the plan to initiate a public offering in London. They sought to raise £70 million from the, f- the planned flotation and hoped for a market valuation of $1 billion, but abandoned that amid volatile markets last year. So Fortress was one of the several potential buyers, which included a US-UK private equity firm. Um, and they've been bought. Hmm. It kind of sounds like between the lines that things weren't going amazingly for banning capital but wasn't fortress it didn't fortress own them anyway like uh, i thought who was funding vanon the, uh, this is you're the london business lawyer i barely <laughs> know what third-party funding is i don't yeah, know right but i mean the, the thing is is that um there's something happening in the third-party funding market and mm. i've talked to some people in different funders and um there's a, a bunch of funds here in london and you know burford capital had some issues as well and so it's kind of, it's causing some uncertainty. And I think maybe, I don't think it has to do with the fact that they've not been successful, but I think that um, there's been a lot of, like, Hail Marys that haven't gone well, mm. maybe. It's an interesting time in the in the industry. Yeah, I mean, they've, I mean it's been on such this crest. I yeah. think it was just bound to happen that yeah. someone, something was going to rock the boat. So then what happens, legally speaking, the the entity that acquires Vanning Capital also acquires their stakes in the pending claims, presumably must, that's, that's yeah. that, the books, that's what they're As buying. That's like their P&Ls, yeah. Yeah. Huh. An interesting deal. It would be interesting to be a fly on the wall when they analyze the claims. I know. I wonder if they're like, you know, if Fortress can now pull out of some of these deals. Probably. Well, could we, you imagine? We would need better lawyers than us to answer that question. <laughs> no, I think they could. I think so, too. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that, that that's and they probably have they acquire the rights to do that basically. Yeah, hmm, okay. I mean there's contracts in place, so clearly you can't yeah. do it just for oh. no cause. But change circumstance more as this story develops mm. on the arbitration station. Maybe we should get some professional third party funder gossiper <laughs> on air. Fine. <laughs> 
but if you are interested uh, in what happened over the summer, as I said, go to iereporter.com and read the summer roundup with links to all the coverages. I think we ended up uh, with reports on 23 new arbitrations over the year. Oh, wow. Over the summer, sorry. And in addition to that, we dug up a bunch of old awards and uh, post-award developments and developments in pending cases. And we had a we had a busy summer while you guys, maybe not you so much, Brian, but many mm. others were just hanging out on the beach. You know what? Some I actually read this um, in the cab right here. Uh, is that London opened a arbitration center, an international arbitration center in March two thousand nineteen. Well, there is this? one already. Not the LCIA. <laughs> it's called London International Center. Oh, so L I C L I C. The same thing, but without the I'm, A. I'm getting this wrong, but it, it launched in March two thousand nineteen, and the point is to have. Um, their own list of arbitrators that are not connected to law firms. They're not connected to um, judges or anything like that. They would just be independent individuals that are competent in certain fields to sit as arbitrators in arbitrations. And they have their own hearing venues and they would basically be their own like institution. Hmm. Um, but they wouldn't have, it wouldn't be operating in the same way as other arbitration. Is it, um, do you know if it's a, a scrappy outsider trying to, uh, disrupt the market or is it launched by and with it's not some insider? With, no. no, I think it is a scrappy outsider trying to, um, get in on the market. Okay. If so, I immediately changed my mind and I'm with them. Oh, you like this? Yeah. Why? Love the underdog. Always love the underdog. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, London Arbitration Center launches. It's the city finally gets the dispute space it's been waiting for. What? <laughs> it's yeah. always been a problem that there's no arbitration center in it's London. It's called the IAC. IAC. It's headed by Chief Executive Owen Lawrence, who was recruited after 20 years career at the bar, most recently at 39 Essex Chambers. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, this, you're definitely talking like an old senior arbitrator who's like, the f- don't take away our business. Yeah, exactly. Do not disrupt. Yeah. Oh, well, well, we will see, I guess. I generally am a bit skeptical every time a new arbitration institution opens up. I yeah, think I there's, don't think there's it's more than work. enough. No, yeah. <laughs> no offense. No. That's... If you want to sponsor us. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that, that's the summer, I guess. Yeah. Um, today we are going to do something substantive. Yeah, actually, before we... I mean, this is... We'll call this semi-substantive, so this will be one of them. The summer roundup that the we just roundup. did? Yeah, the Based. arbitration station selective summary <laughs> of the summer. Four cases, Brian got engaged. Yeah. End of list. Substantive. <laughs> uh, and then for the second topic, I will be talking about public declarations by officials, or of declarations by public officials, I should say, um, and how those relate to the interpretation of treaty violations. So how can a head of state or their, a comment by a head of state or someone from the government influence how a tribunal um, interprets a treaty violation? This is very interesting. It is very interesting because we ta- I've actually had a case where that was a pivotal uh, role. And I also spoke at, um, I th- it was the Ukrainian Bar Association had a conference and I just spoke over video link, but talked about um, they had some of their um, Russia Crimea issues and how the Ukrainian president came up and said, actually, 
Well, we'll talk about it in the segment, but um, (laughs) the president said something and it could change the way um, their uh, pending disputes regarding Crimea could be analyzed. I had understood that the division of labor here was that I am the professor who knows investment law and you're Mm -hmm. the person who makes money and works with commercial arbitration. (laughs) Are you now taking over the... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, commercial hasn't really been doing enough for me lately. (laughs) Okay, does that mean that I have to... Move into commercial arbitration. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm, okay. Um, and then we will round off the episode with something that is related to the substantive issue of engagement, which is um, dating in arbitration. And you will see why we think this is important and why it's very specific to arbitration. Before we move on to the first topic, or the second topic, um, the Dutch Arbitration Association has the Dutch Arbitration Days on October 10th. 2019, so it is coming up. You can still um, register. It's dutcharbitrationassociation.nl slash events, and you'll see it in the DAA Dutch Arbitration Day uh, 2019. They have a very interesting program, which we unfortunately were not able to speak at, but they are having... Yes, that's similar to my wedding. We had planned to be there together, you and I, and yes. then your job came in between, and we yes. are now not going to Amsterdam the same way you did not attend my wedding because you had to work. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm gonna hurt myself tonight. <laughs> um, they have a diversity networking breakfast. They have a um, keynote, they have two keynote addresses one by uh, the Right Honorable the Lord Mance. I don't know how to say that, RT, right? Mm. Um, the Righteous. Uh, he's a barrister at Seven Kings Bench Walk, and he'll be talking about the return of the world of arbitration. The second keynote address, who is a fan of the podcast, I can say, is uh, Stephen Yagush, uh, who is a global chair of international arbitration practice at Quinn Emanuel. Um, they will talking about Dutch view on arbitration as a means for dispute resolution, um, the rise of commercial courts, a challenge or an opportunity. Um, investment law and the new frontier, the challenges and opportunities that investment courts may bring about. Um, and they talk about enforcement. They talk about the protection of personal data and GDPR in breakout session B. So you guys can catch that. Um, and dissenting opinions. Um, so there's, it's, um, it's only 325 euros for non-members, 275 for members and 150 for in-house counsel. And Amsterdam is a top five city in the world in the world i agree with you mm. so it's so it's only a one day um conference but you can definitely extend that into a weekend of bicycling and hagerschlag yes yay <laughs> yay amsterdam <laughs> now brian please lecture me on public officials So the attentive listener has uh, figured out and or maybe will figure out pretty soon that we are not in Brian's office anymore. The sound level is different. And that's because uh, we had some issues. Brian had some issues, really, locating a cord. (laughs) (laughs) We ran out of uh, time to record in the office. So the plan was to record while I was at Gatwick Airport on my way back home to Copenhagen. But that did not work out either because I do not hang out in lounges the way you always do when you travel. Brian, I'm, I'm more of a... Uh, economy kind of uh, traveler. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So I am back in Copenhagen. We have to record this afterwards, but I think we will manage anyway. I really look forward to this particular segment on uh, what do we call it officially? State officials and their uh, uh, public declarations. Public declarations. 
which is something you know a lot about and have lectured or talked about in other contexts. So please educate me, Brian Kotick. I will, Joel. And I think I think it's a pretty straightforward topic. So I don't think it's going to be kind of this um, groundbreaking legal exercise, but I think it's going to have a lot a, of real world implications. And also, I think maybe we have gone too far. So that's where I'm going to ask you questions at the end, whether you think, um, you know, applying this case to a real world situation, what you think would be the appropriate conclusion. Okay, taking um, notes. Taking, taking notes. notes. Uh, but first, you can just hear me talk about an interesting case that I worked on. Full disclosure, I worked on as counsel, but I have been far removed from that case for a couple of years. So my comments do not relate to anything that has to do with the present position of the of that case. But also, these are all public documents because they're public declarations uh, by public officials. So I don't um, even need to preface anything because anyone could find these in the newspapers or TV shows where from which they came. Hmm. Um, so the case that I'm talking about is Wattenfall v. Germany. And in that case, there was a change of government in 2009. And there was a coalition between the conservative parties and they formed a new government um, under the federal chancellor Angela Merkel, which we know. And the new government adopted an energy policy intended to be valid until 2050 called the energy concept for the environmentally sound, reliable and affordable energy supply. So as part of this energy policy, the lifetime of these power plants were to be extended and it would bridge the transition to renewable energy. So these nuclear power plant operators not only were able to produce more, but under this regime, they were also given new electricity production volumes on top of their old production volumes. So it gave them what was known as like a lifetime extension. Um, so we also know that in March, on March 20, uh, March 12th, 2011, the nuclear core in Fukushima was damaged and heated up uncontrollably, causing this explosion, which destroyed the reactor building. And that very same day, Angela Merkel invited the federal ministers for an emergency meeting. And in the afternoon, she gave a press conference. So now we have the first public um, declaration by an official. Um, she says, we know how safe our power plants are. We know that we are not threatened by earthquakes of that severity or by tsunamis of that power. All the same, we will learn all the lessons we can from the course of events in Japan. In the next days and weeks, we'll be closely following the outcome and the analysis. Um, Two days, or the next day, a federal chance. No, no, the Angela Merkel was interviewed on TV, and she said in response to the power plants, "Many people have concerns, and I say to them clearly, according to everything that we know, tonight our nuclear power plants are safe, and everyone knows this who has already been involved with the subject." When asked whether it be a good idea to shut down the old nuclear power plant, one relating to the investor Vattenfall. She said, well, as I've repeatedly said, we are using this as an opportunity not to go back to normal. However, these reactors have also continued to operate since the decision by the government to exit nuclear energy. And if there's been any indication that they are not safe today, then they would not be able to operate for a single day longer. And then the very next day, a moratorium was announced by Angela Merkel that stated that they would accelerate the federal government's shift from nuclear energy to renewable energy. Um, so... Just to give everyone an idea about this case, the claim was that this moratorium basically, you know, they had the legitimate expectations that you would have this lifetime extension. And now we have a moratorium saying, no, we're going to actually accelerate the shutdown and the exit from nuclear energy. Um, so you have these power plants saying, you know, celebrating at one moment that they have all of these volumes to produce. And then the next moment they 
do not. That's um, not what the claim was. That's what the claim is because is. this award never <laughs> comes. Yeah, it's never going to come. Maybe it'll be like given to Vandenberg on his grave. Uh, so um, there were even more statements made in the public after this. So, um, for example, on the 15th, so the day after the moratorium, uh, a minister was asked by the press whether the they would shut down old nuclear power plants, whether that shutdown would be permanent. And he says, we have made a different decision again today compared with yesterday. Yesterday, it was a question of only one nuclear power plant, which was affected by the moratorium, including the suspension of the lifespan extension. This affected only the specific power plant. We have now taken a new, more extensive decision, namely to shut down all old nuclear power plants with four precautionary reasons. And believe I believe that we are taking a measure of shutting down these power plants and we'll wait for the results of an investigation. Um, so now you have, I mean, this is, you have Fukushima on the 12th, and then you have the 13th and the 14th, and on the 15th, you have multiple declarations that have serious implications on what's going to happen to the business of these nuclear power plants. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not counsel anymore, Ryan. I'm not, I'm not. But, but I'm not saying whether they were good or bad or whether they were allowed to do it or not, and I'm not saying there's liability, but there are multiple... Uh, things being said by the government. Um, in the Financial Times, a, the federal government established an ethics commission and the Financial Times wrote that the federal chancellor is preparing for a rapid end to nuclear energy in Germany. She appointed a, um, a top critic of nuclear power to head up an ethics commission, which is going to evaluate and classify the risks, the risks of this form of energy. Um, and following the nuclear disaster in Fukushima, increasing number of politicians have moved away from nuclear energy, and they're expecting a shutdown in 2020. Um, so we have. So now it's getting a bit. You know, whether you consider you know this article, whether this was a public declaration or not. Anyway, mm -hmm. let's keep going. Um, on April 4th, so just a couple weeks later, the Deputy Minister of the Environment confirmed in a decision that had been reached regarding the eight shut down nuclear power plants, so the old nuclear power plants. And uh, the Deputy Minister of the Environment said that the Chancellor and her ministers are currently putting in a lot of effort into giving the impression that the phase-out of nuclear energy and the energy turnaround are being addressed without fixed expectations as to their outcome. Otherwise, why would we need all these commissions? An appearance by the Federal Secretary of State for the Environment, Jürgen Becker, indicates the fact that it could actually all have been decided. He fell into the hands of a Reuters reporter at a meeting of the International Renewable Energy Agency in Abu Dhabi and proudly announced in English, a decision has been made to shut down eight nuclear power plants and they will definitely not be reactivated. The remaining nine will be shut down at the end of the decade. Um, so I think you get where I'm going with this. Um, so now we have all of these declarations. As far as I can understand, it's Vattenfall good, Germany bad. That's, that's <laughs> <Okay>. a bit... <laughs> well, no, and this is the whole... I mean, the reason why the case is so highly debated is because you do have a very serious issue that happened in Fukushima, and it caused the entire nuclear energy sector kind of kind of reevaluate what's happening. Right. Um, the only thing that I will say, regardless of whether it's right or wrong, is you have statements coming out from, um, you know, the federal chancellor saying one thing and then you have the government taking these actions but they're not coming down in decisions they're coming down in declarations by public officials hmm. so the question is and the question to you is um how much should these declarations be made because or how much weight should this declaration have when it's not coming in the decision and it's not coming um in some sort of formal resolution 
But I mean, could you, it could fall in, especially in the investor treaty context, it could fall into certain bowls or pockets, I would say. Mm. Um, you know, you could say, does it really create liability immediately? Like, would they say, we're now taking your, your property? Would that be an expropriatory act per se? I don't think so. Cause you know, would, would it be liability in that sense? Or could it be more of a nuanced approach and say, well, it could affect the legitimate expectations of the investor because the investor is clearly reading these articles and listening to the news and as the shareholders are listening and are making, you know, it's really affecting the business and it could, you know, um, start the decline in the profits of the company or whatever like that. Do you think that these public declarations can be used? Uh, mm, not on their own, um, okay. the, the way you framed it so far. There, there's no wrongful act necessarily so so the, the statements on their own uh, would be very hard i think generally to to argue as as a breach of of a treaty obligation which is i guess what we're talking about here uh, unless as you say there's actually some sort of causal connection to investor losing money on its investment as you hinted at which might be the case in certain scenarios including this i guess as yeah. you mentioned with with the share prices or whatever but i think the key point which i'm guessing is is the trajectory of this discussion is that it comes into the whole factual matrix once another measure has been enacted you can of course uh, use this as evidence and, and to paint the picture of the state having you know had intention x or to, to right. explain the context of of the measure but at this just initial stage in, in, in the vattenfall case nothing has been done yet right right but what you i mean let's say the federal chancellor, the president of the United States, or you know, similar, says we will take your land, mm. and then the taking happens. And of course, this is going to affect quantum, and it's going to affect the date of expropriation, and it's going to affect a, a lot of things. Um, it could affect jurisdiction depending on where it falls into the into the case, into the timeline. Do you think that a party could argue that the declaration was the first? expropriatory act in this composite act of expropriation mm, or do you so, think it would have to be a taking on its own yeah i would have to say the latter you're mm -hmm. you're, you're suggesting a, a creeping expropriation expropriation essentially several steps so it, it would again depend on what happens subsequent yeah. to the declaration i think yeah, I think you're you're right. I mean, it does go into the into the context, like whether the declaration would have some sort of like immediate effect, or you know whether the you know shareholders pulled out immediately based on that declaration. I think you could argue it either way. Right. Um, another way, another thing to think about. I mean, mainly this because aside from the the effect of the actual declaration, you also have who is a public official and mm. what can be attributed to the state. So there's all there's this agency discussion that can also be said. You know, you have the federal chancellor. That's kind of a clear sign that it is a public official but what if you have for example a lower level official that is accepting a bribe um from you know someone you know one of the from an investor for example um now we don't even have a public declaration in like the verbal sense but you have an act by the government mm -hmm. um that could be necessarily arguably attributed to the state um, and whether that act, you know, or like a solicitation of a bribe, let's like even make it more nuanced, right? You, you have the verbal declaration, but it's a solicitation of a bribe. Could that be held against the state now for liability for illegality? 
Mm. Um, you have the agency discussion, but you also have whether this like solicitation um, by the public official could be used against the government. Yeah, the attribution issue, essentially. Right, right. Um, so this, the reason why this came up, and when I was speaking um, remotely from the Ukrainian Bar Association, is that um, you have the issue in Donbas with um, Russia and Crimea, and the the issue there is there was a, you know there's a public international law question of whether Russia has effective control over Crimea. Um, so to establish that there was like authority in fact, and it's in fact being exercised by the intervening state in the areas in question. Um, so this is, you know, a de definition coming from the DRC v. Uganda from the ICJ. Um, and what happened in, you know, in the news was that the president of Ukraine uh, expressed in the news, or I think it was in a press conference, he said that the that there was a blatant violation of the Minsk agreements from Crimea, the use of artillery, and this demonstrates at least the partial loss of control over mercenaries. We hope that the Russian side will regain control over these units. Um, so it's the opposite issue, right? Because the the annexation of Crimea by Russia and the invasion of you know Russia by or invasion of Crimea by Russia is the wrongful act. But now you have a declaration by the president of Ukraine saying that this wrongful act is no longer wrongful because it's all related to the effect of control over Crimea. Mm. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So he basically said that, that there has been a partial loss of control. Okay, well, does that declaration admit that Russia has lost control over Crimea and therefore all the cases that relate to the annexation of Crimea, um, that this statement could be said, well, now th the cases are moot. Was there any input from the audience when you spoke to the Ukrainian Bar Association about this. I would imagine this is something that provokes a little bit of interest. Yeah, I mean, they basically said it wasn't, um, you know, it, it can be, if taken out of context, it could have this type of impact. Um, we're just jumping straight to the conclusion, but um, it could have this type of impact that he, if it was a reasonable, like, discussion about whether Russia, in fact, contr effectively controlled um, Crimea, but um, I think the general consensus was that it was just kind of a misstatement um, and that it not a misstatement, but kind of like a statement that had a lot more impact than than intended. And it was more like gain control over these mercenaries and not the effect. You know, I'm not like speaking on the effective control of Russia in that um, in that area. Mm. But he did, I mean, the way that he talks about this blatant violation of the Minsk agreements and he makes it, he does, his his um, statement does elevate it to an international dispute in that sense, right? He's not right. saying that this is a dispute within the Crimea and like, you know, the people in Crimea need to get, you know, the control over these mercenaries. He's basically saying that Russia is violating international, this is an international problem and we're talking about the partial loss of control. So you could kind of interpret it if in that way to say that um, that there may be some sort of like effect that could happen. But um, and no, so I mean, basically, it wouldn't really influence. That's kind of the that was kind of the has it been argued? There are a bunch of these cases. I don't know if no, you have anything in the public record. I haven't been discussed seen anything. Um, 
And I have to give credit to Olga Kuchmienko, who was actually an old student of yours who planned this uh, UBA event, and she um, spoke on this. But there, from what she had talked about, there was no um, immediate um, response from these cases or immediate like ad- adoption of this argument in in the cases. But um, it's just an it's an interesting. Um, tactic to use in investment arbitration to use the declarations of presidents as you know what about a, a tweet you know mm. what i mean like <laughs> i um, know i know what you mean <laughs> <laughs> to really extend the argument um if if that can be used against our president in ongoing investment treaty cases mm. yeah and this is i mean obviously to to simplify as much as possible the state is one under international law Right. It's 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 as 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 crystallized as it can be when it's the head of state or the head of government making pronouncements in a public setting. But it could also, as you hinted at, be someone lo- lower further down the the chain of command. Doesn't really yeah. matter if it's someone in their official capacity. In in theory, they are acting on behalf of the state. I guess right. it's not necessarily so though that uh, those pronouncements would entail legal consequences. Uh, Mostly in a, in a factual scenario, I'm guessing is where it would come into play, like unilateral declarations. But it's of course uh, at its most interesting when when it's the high level officials, uh, presidents, and the like, uh, saying something unilaterally that may create problems for the state. I mean, also thinking about this, this is slightly tangential but still related issue in in uh, in Oncetral or other contexts where states are negotiating in a semi-public setting. It's different from saying something about a factual scenario, but where they express views on legal issues. Mm-hmm. You know, we we have always understood the FVT to mean this, or this is our view on transparency, or the official line of the government is is X when it comes to some sort of frequently occurring provision. That is also something that you, uh, as, a, as a creative lawyer, could use in an ongoing case where that provision comes up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and that, that's what I think it is. I think it's just another, like, you know, tool in the toolbox to use. But whether a tribunal will kind of give credence to that um, is, is a different thing. But, I mean, I, the president cannot come out and say whatever it wants and then be like, oh, I didn't really know what I was talking about. I think there's a lot of implications that can happen from a presidential declaration mm. um, or a high-level official's declaration. Because if you're talking about business and you're talking about shareholders and you're talking about public perception, um, then... This, the president can't get away with it because, as you say, it's one with the state. So yeah, um, there I, I guess it also something. depends on your your general view of the state. Uh, different arbitrators might have different takes here, right? Uh, when it comes to the the le- level of uh, discretion, you instinctively feel that the state is entitled to just by virtue of being a state because right. it's such a complicated machinery with different ministries and different officials and typically competing interests within the state. So it's not rare that you see two different officials saying two different things. <laughs> right. And so we can't really hold them to like the highest threshold for that. No, but I mean, legally, I guess we we can typically. Or yes. Less, but, but practically, it doesn't feel very appealing to, uh, you know, contrast what the president is saying with what the head of some agency is saying. Right. And they are both speaking on behalf of the state in terms of international law. But of course, one is is entitled to more weight than the other. Right. Fair statement. Well, I declare this segment over. And we get to open a beer or maybe two. See you there. 
Hey. That was a good sound. Cheers. Happy fun time. Um, happy fun time indeed. It's one of these good happy fun times where one of us pitches a topic and the other one says, sure, I don't know anything about that. I don't know how it would work. Yeah, you do your thing and see if you can convince me. Typically, I'm the <laughs> one who comes up with them. Now, it's your idea and I'm going to uh, take a seat back and see why you think this is worthy of a segment. Okay. <laughs> so, I have, I have two... Well, I have two... Th- like branches of this topic okay dating and arbitration yes dating and arbitration the two topics that i want to address in this are one the fact that in our industry we are very mobile individuals you were just in new york for a summer just bruised my hand doing uh you were just in new york for a summer i have just moved countries um people in arbitration they do they go back to school and do phds we're very ambitious people and we definitely prioritize the progression of our ambitions and our careers potentially over the convenience of being next to your loved one um, that you have. And I've I've met numerous couples, and we were actually going to interview people, but it would have been too personal. Um, numerous couples that are long distance just because it's the nature of our business. Topic one. Topic two is how do you date when you're pulling all-nighters and long hours? And not only how do you date in try and get into a relationship if that's what you so desire or how do you maintain a relationship and keep the significant other happy who's home at six and twiddling their thumbs until two thirty in the morning when you stumble in and like are screaming out of frustration i gotta say i'm intrigued <laughs> almost sold already almost sold. Yeah. okay that's fine. a topic let me continue <laughs> uh so in long distance and maybe you can like testify to this in your experience is that you know, for example, I we both have a mutual friend in Sweden um, who's been long distance for about eight years with his wife. Um, so you have a PhD, you who turns into a job. Well, clearly you have to support your partner. This is your partner in life and the achievement of their dreams and the, and the pursuit of their dreams. But you as well um, are on the other end trying to do the same yourself. And we're, let's say we're in Europe. Each country is not, I mean, you can be hired in arbitration quite easily, but there's a lot of domestic law issues and employment law issues and getting a visa mm. that don't make it easy for both people to then migrate True. to the same country. But they, I, I recognize here that I am uniquely flexible in the sense that I don't really have a job. But I, right. I think generally arbitration lawyers, assuming that the person you are dating is not an arbitration lawyer, you are more likely to be the more flexible person in terms of geography and, and career development. Very, very few people are as internationally mobile as we are, Yes, by and large. That's true. Doesn't that sort of put the onus on you to be the, the one who moves? If you live in a big country or you speak English as a native language or yeah. can speak English quite well. Right. If you are a in Warsaw at a great firm but working in Poland, Polish... Um, and you meet someone who is Spanish. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter which one of them is the arbitration lawyer, but you're not working in Madrid and you're not working in Poland. So you could go to London. Someone's English skills aren't up to snuff. Even here, it's, you know, unless you're near native, it's going to be difficult to lock down a position. Sidebar, you think so? Oh, getting a job here? Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. We Your both know of and and, uh, and talk frequently to people whose English aren't maybe what you would say <laughs> after stepping. Yeah, still not near native. Fine, 
But um, yeah, so that's, I think it's, um, do you think that this is a, the new normal? Or do you think that people should, that we should focus on? Or do you think it's destroying relationships and arbitration? <laughs> One or the other. It would be interesting to see how common it is compared to other professions that lawyers, and now specifically I'm talking about arbitration lawyers, date other arbitration lawyers. Because they understand. Yeah, and because you're in the same position. I think the later in life you meet your significant other, the more likely you are to meet someone in the exact same profession as yourself. I read a list, a list that was published maybe five years ago or something, I read it in Sweden, that it's one doctors, two nurses, three lawyers, I think, in terms Date of... within the field. Yeah, exactly. Like the, the people who most often... Which is fair. Yeah, I think so too. And I think arbitration lawyers might be even more so than the average lawyer, actually, if we would group it into sub-branches. Classical musicians <laughs> also date other classical musicians. Yeah, people who are like thrown into the same weird situations. I think when it's like extreme ambition and drive, it's like a relationship could only hold you back, really. Yeah. And so like, you know, for example, if you're, because my ex was a classical musician, he doesn't listen to the podcast because he wouldn't understand what we're talking about. Uh, you know, it was practicing all day. Hmm booking certain flights because your instrument can't go underneath the plane or be checked. That's really annoying. <laughs> uh, and not only that, but then, you know, you you can get... To get into a symphony or to get into orchestra is really difficult. Right. So if you get invited to the St. Louis Philharmonic, you take that job. Yeah, and you move to Missouri. Yeah. And I don't want to move to Missouri. Yeah. So they tend to date each other. Yeah. Yeah, and so do we, I guess. Have you ever dated an arbitration lawyer? No. No. Same no. Way. Not dated. <laughs> you, you've Saw. met them. Yeah. <laughs> Shaking hands Shaking with. Shaking hands with. At some point. <laughs> Over dinner. Uh, no. No, I have not. Because that's another thing, I think. that I mean, we obviously run this podcast. Mm-hmm. And 65%, at least, of our friendship is arbitration related. So we obviously enjoy this. <laughs> so sad. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> True, though. Yeah. Fine. Probably more. <laughs> But but I would never, I think, be interested in sharing my life with someone who is as interested as I am in arbitration, because that would just drain everything else out of my life. Right. It would be arbitration only. You wouldn't be cool anymore, really. No, the very limited <laughs> amount of cool that I already have would just disappear. No, I think, and I've gotten into like a discussion with this with at my old firm, is that there are some people who had dated either like in-house lawyers or other types of lawyers and arbitration lawyers as well. And they say, it's nice to go home. And you say, you know, I have a filing in two weeks. Like, he won't see me. And they get it. Mm, mm. Um, and it's nice to say, hey, I'm trying to figure out this argument. What Do you know a case on that? And you basically have, like, someone who you can breach confidentiality with. Uh, and they know what you're talking about. That's true. But it would be better, I think, if it was just any other lawyer or a banker or someone else who's right. also, like, a type A person, but not in the exact overlapping right. world, basically. Could you imagine? You guys are going to conferences together? Oh, it's tricky, no. though. And uh, the gossiping. And then if you have kids, you're going to fuck them up forever. Because no one's going to see them? Yeah. And then, no, <laughs> both parents are arbitration lawyers. Right? Yeah. It's like arbitration, arbitration, arbitration at the dinner table snobbiest, growing up. Snobbiest kid. How many of us... Tying now back to your second question about how do you actually start yeah. dating people? How many of us do you think there are? Are there enough to sustain a dating app only for arbitration lawyers? It's oh, like it's a like critical mass. This could be interesting. I mean, 
We need to branch out <sighs> and, and diversify the products that we are offering our listeners. Maybe we should start a, a, a Tinder only for arbitration lawyers. Oh my God, could you imagine? I guess that's the point of the Vismuto. <laughs> <laughs> no? The Vismuto is definitely um, the teenage version of camp. It's like, Mom, I met someone at camp. Uh, yeah, no, no. The Vismuto is like the ripe age of like ambition you're meeting people that are like-minded in the same age and then someone is moderately attractive in their horrible ill-fitting black suit uh yeah no that is what it is but that would be that would be interesting but the second question that i had was um when you are working insane hours and when you are traveling and when you do have filings and you aren't coming home at a reasonable time for weeks on end how are you expected to sustain a relationship secondly how are you supposed to date i mean how are you supposed to find one and and I want to be perfectly clear, like, confirmed bachelors and bachelorettes, like, go for it. They, you do not need a relationship. You do not need to be defined by someone else. But I'm just saying, if this assuming is something that you're interested in, assuming that you, this is something that you're interested in, how do you do it? There's a very competent lawyer in this office. She's um, impeccably dressed every morning, works all hours of the night, has so much trouble because there's not enough time in the day to, to sustain or, you know, meet someone, really. And so I was talking to a couple of people about this, and a, a trend that I have have noticed is that it's like a kid. So you work until nap bedtime, and then you go home, and then you have like pre-bedtime, and you put your significant other to bed at the reasonable oh. hour, and then you continue to work from home. Sad face. <laughs> I mean, but it's like kids. I mean, that's how you. Yeah, that's yeah, how true. you don't like your kids don't get raised by someone else. So that's one way to do it. Yeah. Another way to do it is to say, you know, kind of not work those long nights because we tend to be inefficient because we know we're going to be at the office at all out at all hours of the night anyway. So you tend to like take a long lunch and I'm going to be here anyway. Type right. Of thing. So it the, you just become extremely efficient and then have like one week of like you cannot talk to me basically. But to be fair, doesn't this also apply generally to? people in high-performing professions, consultancies, especially, like other lawyers who aren't just arbitration lawyers. And isn't the case that the... In fact, I think the popular refrain, and you might know this better, is that arbitration lawyers are less like this, i.e. less occupied all hours of the day than M&A lawyers or banking mm-hmm. and finance lawyers or whatever, because we have deadlines and we work in disputes where there's some sort of uh, modicum of, like, a... a a calendar that yeah. makes everything more predictable. I, I would imagine it's worse for like every other person working at this firm or any other firm that the arbitration lawyers are supposed to be the ones who are actually able to plan their their lives. To an extent, yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the transaction lawyers definitely do not. A transaction comes and that whole week is blown out. Um, but we have extensions and we have provisional measures mm. and we have... Wonderful questions from the tribunal that show up at a date that was completely unannounced. You had no idea we're coming, right. and now you're screwed. So we do have those type of elements, but I agree with you. We are, of most lawyers, able to plan. Yeah, I also feel like this might be the time for me to bring out my tiny violin and, and say, cry me a river again. Like, <laughs> don't work for a law firm then. You, you, you'll make shit ton of money. And... How dare you? <laughs> I can have it all. <laughs> No, but this is this is like the, the the Sex in the City pitch. There was like people talking yeah. about this over brunch in the nineteen nineties. Like, oh, I work so much, I will never meet the right one. Yeah, then right. work less. Then, bitch, stop complaining. And to be honest, that's what I mean. That's 
I made a concerted effort to make time to make space to do that. So I think that you, you cannot do both, I think is the answer. And that's unfortunate. Kind of is, unless you meet someone who's in the exact same position, but then what kind of who relationship? Understand. Well, exactly. Then you're just going to be like shaking hands in and out the door, be like, good luck out there. And then you don't really have like an intimate relationship. It's interesting. And you, and you don't want, I mean, this goes back to like our mental health episode, but it wasn't, it was actual physical health. So we haven't even talked about the mental health yet. Oh, right. Um, it goes back to that where it's like, are you going to, if this makes you happy, are you going to do something about it? Or are you just going to sacrifice it for the rest of your life? Who knows? But that is dating and arbitration, in my opinion. I'm envisioning, though, some sort of uh, house of cards relationship, like a power couple, but in arbitration. Like I, We're both going to make partners at, this, at, our, at our separate firms. We're right. going to help each other rise to the top. You know, the, you've seen House of Cards, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah, they yeah. You know, share a cigarette at the end of the day and that's like the only time they meet and then they <laughs> exactly. plan their like cold-hearted moves to, to move up the ladder. But that's not nice. No, but that could happen. I mean, everyone's different to each his own. Yeah, that's true. If you want to do that, go ahead. <laughs> I would just never do that. <laughs> okay, this could be a, a segment actually, but I'm not going to give up on the, the arbitration lawyer Tinder. I think there's a market there. There's some, what would it be called? Um, law match. Arbitrinder. 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 And copyright infringement, most likely. <laughs> yeah. Okay, fine. Uh, it would definitely have to be like, mm, gavel banging. Oh, uh, no gavels in arbitration. Yeah. But like the banging, though. <laughs> That's the Peroni talking. Yeah, perhaps. Uh, is this the the end of the first episode of the fourth season? It is. 4.1. Do you feel good to be back? Yeah. I'm a little bit upset that you couldn't find the cord to the microphone and we got delayed a little bit, though. I thought we would record the whole season this afternoon, but I guess we'll... We could have. We'll have to do it live instead. Yeah, so we're in the same room now. We don't know when we'll be in the same room again. Mm, probably not. Are you going to Sweden or, or Denmark anytime soon? Yeah, we'll Maybe. figure it out. We'll meet halfway, which is in like Munich or something. <laughs> Frankfurt at my favorite bar. <laughs> yeah. Oh, perfect. <laughs> all right. Um, that is all. Follow us at the Arb Station on Twitter. Email us at thearbitrationstation at gmail.com. Go to or visit our website at www.thearbitrationstation.com. Thank you to Dimitri, who is helping us with research this season too, and thank you IA Reporter, where once again, there's an excellent summer roundup, Yes, summarized by yours truly, uh, if you're interested in what happened during the summer. Thank you, and speak to you again in two weeks. Sounds good. Jan, make us sound good. Mm-hmm.